We are going to wrap up our God Is series this morning. And uh, over the last few gatherings here, we've looked at how God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We've talked about God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. And this morning, we are going to look at how God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And it's kind of going to summarize really a lot of the songs that we've already sang together this morning and remind ourselves that, that God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. Um, and I think it's really important for us as individual followers of Christ, but also as a community following Christ together, to know this, that to really know the, the four points of the God Is series. Like these are relevant in every aspect of our life. God is, so we don't have to. Um, and it really helps us identify the wanderingness of our hearts, right? And then correct it and repent with worship. Um, and so this morning, as we go through God Is, we're going to be looking just at uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse uh, 44. Um, that was just read for us. And I love this. In fact, this verse is my favorite ver- single verse in all of Scripture. Um, and I, I kind of, in my mind, I picture this verse, this parable, because it's, you know, in the midst of a bunch of other parables, and all the other parables have a whole lot more words in it. So I kind of feel like this parable is like one of those people that don't talk often, but when they do, it's important, and you need to listen to it, because there's a lot of wisdom and truth in it. And that's kind of how I, I see this parable. Um, So Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. And the the the, um, I want to walk through this morning, kind of three points uh, that we'll cover together. First, I want to look through this verse and see how we uh, can magnify God in our hearts and minds. Uh, Second, we want to highlight and talk about the futility of idolatry. Um, Because really, idolatry is the opposite of worship. And if our hearts are prone to idolatry, we want to understand why it is that we are called to worship instead of idolize. And and why it is that worship is better than uh, idolatry. And then I want to look at ways to equip us to recognize and repent. Um, from idolatry. And so again, this morning, our, our message is be focused on God is good. So we don't have to look elsewhere. And this is uh, important for us because every moment of, of every uh, situation we have in our lives, we are constantly being tugged to look elsewhere, right? Like that's a part of the fallen world that we live in. Even though we are saved, we're still in a broken body in a fallen world where the presence of sin is everywhere constantly and our hearts are constantly tugged at to look elsewhere every time we pick up our phone we turn on the television we go to a movie all of these things are designed by the world um, to get us to look to them or to teach us something that will make us better it'll make our lives better if only we have this or accomplish this then we'll be fulfilled but the truth is that god is good so we don't need to look elsewhere Let's pray together. God, we ask this morning that with grace and mercy, you would expose the idols that our hearts are so easily and quickly drawn to. 
And we pray, God, uh, actually we're thankful, God, that you don't leave us pointing out the ways that we mess up or the ways that we miss the mark. But God, you extend your grace and mercy and you extend the good news of what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, who Christ has made us to be and how Christ has freed us to live. So we pray that in our time together that Christ would be exalted, that we would leave here this morning and that Christ would be exalted more in our daily lives this week than he was last week. And we ask that just as we sang this morning, that you would cause our hearts to believe. And we pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we'll be looking at the parable uh, of the hidden treasure. And just as a quick reminder, a parable is uh, simply a story that is used by Christ in the four Gospels to illustrate a spiritual point um, to his listeners. And again, this morning, verse 44, Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. And so when we look at this, we first just want to break it down just really simply and understand what the, the verse is getting at. And, and so the kingdom of heaven is like, and so it's easy for us to see that, that Jesus is making a comparison. He's going to compare a treasure that's hidden in a field with his kingdom, right? And, and so what he's trying to do is he's trying to really the... the um, the point of this verse, I believe, is that that Jesus is trying to communicate the ultimate value of the treasure. That in this, that the treasure is worth more than anything else that we could that we do have or that we could obtain. And so he does that by saying that the treasure is hidden in a field. And one thing that we need to understand is, is why is a treasure hidden in a field? Well, Quite honestly, it's because back when this was written, people didn't take their money to a bank. There were no banks. So people who had great possessions, such as a treasure, would bury it in a field that they owned. So now why this person decided to sell his field is beyond us. But um, we want to understand that it, in his joy, the person who found the treasure in the field, it says in his joy, he sells all that he has and he buys that field. And we want to see that joy is the only right response when a person's eyes and heart are opened up to the truth or the value of Jesus. Right? Like, and the reason that people um, unfortunately reject Christ is because their eyes haven't been opened to, to see the, the ultimate value of Christ, the ultimate value of what Christ has done. And so Jesus uses this comparison to announce to his disciples that the kingdom of heaven is made up of those who have come to value Jesus above all else. Like that's, that's harsh, but it's righteous, right? Like in our efforts to live out our identity as a family of servant missionaries, we don't want to try and focus so much on the mission side where we want to get people in. We want people to come to know the ultimate value of Jesus that we ultimately devalue Jesus, right? We don't live in a world where anything you choose leads you to the same destination as someone who chooses something else. Like that's, that's just the reality of, 
of life and the way that it is. And so let's take a minute and think through the implications for the Jews as this was being shared with them. Because remember, Jesus is sharing this. The book of Matthew was written to the Jewish people to try and convince them that Jesus was, in fact, the the Messiah. The one that they had been promised through all of their, their history as a people would come to save them. And unfortunately, as we know, looking back, that most of them rejected Christ. But the intention of Matthew was to communicate and convince his fellow Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And so in this small, short parable, Jesus is challenging all of their man-made religion, their man-made rules, their traditions, and most importantly, their man-made expectations of the Messiah. He's challenging all of that. And so it's helpful for us if we ask ourselves the question, why is the treasure worth obtaining at the expense of anything else that we hold dear? Like, why is it worth, why is the treasure worth, in our parable here, it was worth it for this person who found the treasure hidden in the field to sell everything that he had, everything that he had known, everything that he had worked hard for, he sold it all so that he could purchase this field. Not because the field had value, but because of the treasure that was hidden in the field. So why is it that it is worth sacrificing everything? Because ultimately, that is the call of Christ on those who believe, is that we sacrifice everything. Everything. All of our dreams, our aspirations. We sacrifice our time, our finances, our intentions. And it's not because there's no benefit in the sacrifice, right? But it's because we are called now to live according to who God has made us to be. In a January uh, 31st, 2017 devotional on the Ligonier website, it talks about the goodness of God. And it says this, as a divine attribute, goodness is first a description of God's essential character. It means that the Lord is not evil that he does not love sin and indeed cannot even be tempted with evil. In this way, it is synonymous with some aspects of what we typically call divine holiness, which refers both to God's being set apart from everything else and to his moral character. Our creator shows goodness in other ways as well. First, the Lord reveals his goodness in his benevolence to his creation. God's benevolence is the kindness the Lord bestows on all people, and include such things as his giving rain to both the just and the unjust. But God also has a specific love only for believers. And by this love, he works out all things for the good of his people. God's special love for his people also manifests his goodness. This love is a holy love, which means that our sins are punished, but they are punished in Christ, who is the propitiation of our sins. In saving us, God does not set aside his love for what is good and his hatred for what is evil, but he judges us in Christ so as to save us without compromising his justice. In his holy love, God also disciplines us for our good and his glory. And so what they're trying to communicate there is is ultimately that God's goodness is most displayed to us in Christ's saving work on our behalf. And sometimes, especially if you've been in church a long time, to hear the gospel or you hear the phrase the gospel or hear people talk about it, it can unfortunately kind of become mundane in our hearts and our minds. 
right? Like we just go, oh, we've heard that. I know that. I want to I know more. I want to learn more. But the truth of Christian maturity is that we never move beyond the gospel. We will ultimately never fully comprehend the gospel until Christ comes back. But Christian maturity is much more about understanding the relevance of the gospel in everyday life. How it moves on from just a Sunday school answer that Jesus died on the cross to save my sins, although that's true and we cherish that. But we learn that in Christ, God has completed all the work necessary for us to be restored to him. All the work necessary. And one thing we want to point out about this parable is, is this person selling all that he has is not this, this parable isn't teaching a, a works based faith. Right. So we don't want to focus on that. It's just teaching the value of the treasure, that the treasure is to be valued above all in a world where we are constantly um, allowing sin to take place in the name of acceptance. It is good for us to be reminded that God has accepted us, not because of who we are or what we have done but because of the work of Christ on our behalf. You see, God doesn't love us because there is something innately great about us. Christ, God loves us because we are now his children, right? I was thinking about it this weekend, even, even with my own kids. It's one of the things we try to teach them is that you don't have to try and do anything to gain our love. We love you not because of what you've done or your personality or how funny you are or how, what skills you have, but it's because of who you are. You are our children, We love you because of that. And the same is true with God and his kids, is that God loves us because we are his. And as our heart is tempted to be called to other things, let's take a moment and be reminded of the work that Christ has completed and why that is good news to us. And so when we talk about this, we kind of talk about this in, in six aspects of Christ's work. His birth. And in Christ's birth, we see that God pursued us. God isn't waiting for us to find him. God isn't waiting for us to finally figure out the technology to discover where heaven is located and make our way there. But God, in his goodness to his people, sent his son to pursue us. In Christ's sinless life, we see that God has fulfilled. Fulfilled what? Fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. Uh, As we read in that devotional, to be in God's presence, you have to be perfect. God doesn't overlook our sin and our falling short so that we can be called his kids. But he made a way through Christ. Christ made every right decision. Christ never fought with his siblings. He never disobeyed his parents. His heart was never drawn away from God. Christ knew that God is good and he didn't need to look elsewhere. In Christ's death, we see that God paid the penalty for our wandering hearts. God paid the penalty for us finding our purpose and our identity in something other than him. In the resurrection, we see that God conquered sin and death. And it no longer has the power over those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ's ascension back to heaven, we see that God reigns. Christ reigns supreme over everything that happens. And when Christ returns, it will be God's final act of restoration. Everything will be made right. 
life as we know it will be without the presence of sin. And Christian maturity is understanding and believing in in these aspects of the gospel and being able to communicate them to others when they are seeking to find acceptance and purpose and meaning in life. It is good news that God has pursued us. Who doesn't want to be pursued? Who doesn't want to, to be brought in to something greater than themselves? That's what our world is searching for. I, yesterday morning, Carver and I went to the uh, Hot Rod Show. And it, it, what was amazing to me is the complete um, embrace of community at those shows. There are people that come for four days and sit out in the Bakersfield spring in the weather around cars because that's where they find their purpose. That's where they find their acceptance. You know, it's easy for them to say, these are my people, right? Like this is where they feel happy and, and nothing else um, really in, during that weekend breaks into that because people are looking for acceptance, But in the gospel, we see that there is no need to look elsewhere for acceptance, comfort, fulfillment, or purpose. And that is good news. Because in the tragedies of life, the human heart constantly wonders, what's the purpose? What's my meaning? How come I'm not making a mark? How come nobody loves me? How come nobody accepts me as I am? Um, If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Psalm chapter 42 and look at uh, the futility of idolatry. And if you're turning there, um, the background to Psalms 42 isn't completely clear. It's actually Psalms 42 and 43. Most people are written together. Um, But what is most commonly agreed upon about these is that David wrote them at a time where he was in isolation. Um, and nobody knows exactly why it could have been because he was being persecuted by Saul or perhaps it was when he had fled from Absalom's rebellion. But what we do know is that David is out in the wilderness by himself um, and not allowed um, to gather with God's people. And in verse three of, of Psalm 42, he says, my tears have been my food day and night. And then also in verse three and, and in verse 10, David says that his enemies are taunting him. Where is your God? So what we want to understand about this is that in David's low lowliness of life, in his isolation, in his sadness and his tears, when he's eating his um, his tears have been his food day and night. What we need to understand is that this is not a good time in David's life. Right. David is suffering. David is desperate. David is cut off from the presence of God as his presence was in the tabernacle. Um, But here's David's response. Verse one. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Think about how hard it would be and we've all probably been in similar situations to David although maybe not physically on on the run but we have all all had times in our lives where we have felt alone where we have felt people taunting us where we have felt that that we can't get out of this depression or sadness or how things just never seem to go our way or the way that we want them to do so we can relate to David in that but here is David's wish his soul pants 
for you, O God. And I like to think, I mean, we, I don't, we don't know where David was at when he wrote this. I mean, I'm a person that likes wild places. I love wild places. And I don't mean, you know, the concrete jungle of the inner city. Um, I'm talking about naturally wild places, places where there aren't a lot of other people. Right. And so in my mind's eye, I can picture David sitting under a tree in the shade, thinking about the course of his life and the, cir- the current circumstances in his life. And as he's sitting there, a deer walks up to a stream and drinks. And I just can't help but think that that was David's inspiration. I don't think David was sitting there thinking, oh, I long for God. What can I say that communicates my longing for God? I think what he's seeing is, is as this deer comes up for this drink of water, David is inspired like, oh, as the deer needs water to live, to multiply, to continue. So my soul needs you, oh God. And I think it's worth noting that in this time of David's life, he didn't wish for one of his wives to be with him or one of his concubines. He didn't wish for the finer foods that kings enjoy. He didn't wish that he had his top of the line entertainment at his disposal to take his mind off of his pain and his suffering and his rejection by people. He didn't wish for the other luxuries of royalty but he longed for God's presence. In David's heart, he knew that the only solution for his pain and his circumstance was God himself. And I think that this helps highlight for us the futility of idolatry. Think about the things that we run to to try and satisfy the longings of our human hearts. And none of those things have intrinsic value. None of those things have the power to eternally satisfy your longing, my longing. They have no power to last. Yes, running to our phones or to food or to substances can cause our hearts and our minds not to think about our troubles for a short time. But they have no way to solve our problems. Right? They just, we just drowned our sorrows. We just do whatever we can to not think about our troubles, which I think, again, is so lost in our society that I admire David for in this, is that he didn't have a problem understanding the wickedness even of his own thoughts and allowing his mind to wander on where he's at in life, the things that have happened to him. I think one of the things that's hard for us today is to allow our minds to be quiet enough to think through the motives of the actions that we take. Why do I really feel this way? Why am I in this situation? Am I really the victim? What did I do to cause this? I think that there is so much health and maturity in being able to quiet your mind, put your phone away, turn the television off, and just think. Scripture calls it meditate, right? We meditate, we think about these things. We think about God's intrinsic character and his value. And we allow that to be compared with our motives and our heart's desires. We need to be okay with our idols being exposed. We don't need to be like the world and try and cover our idolatry and our shortcomings so that people will have a better view of us. We have to be okay with these things coming to the forefront. Because if they don't come out, we're never going to repent. We're just going to keep justifying them. 
and running to them. And so third here this morning, I want to look at a couple of ways to help us to recognize idolatry and repent. And I think there's two quick, easy questions that should be at the forefront of our thoughts and our heart um, in our meditation and in our time allowing our minds to be quiet. And that is, what do you run to for escape? Like we run this, we run our kids through this periodically. What is it? What is your natural inclination to run to when things don't go your way? When your feelings get hurt or you don't succeed at a task that you're trying to succeed at, what is your initial response? And it could be, it's different for all of us. Some of us, they might be the same, but it varies. It's all over. Some people just like to run from everything. I just need to get away and then things will get better, right? I just need to drink more and it will get better. I just need to spend more money and then my heart will be happy at least for a little bit. I just need to pass the next level on my game and, you know, then people will know that I'm really good. And it's, it's easy for us to chuckle at these things now when we're talking about it publicly, but the reality is, is these are the tendencies of, the, of our heart. These are the things that we try and keep people from seeing. Another question is, is what or who is the ultimate solution in your mind's eye. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about two necessary ways that we need to understand the gospel. And one is the power of the gospel. That is, the gospel is the power to transform. It doesn't make better. It completely transforms who you are as a person. But the other way that we need to understand the gospel is more of a story form. It's the purpose of the gospel. What is the purpose of the gospel? Why did God enact the gospel plan? Why are we called to preach the gospel, to remind one another of the gospel? Because the, gospel's, the purpose of the gospel is to restore. It's to make whole again. Right? And every human heart believes this cycle of what they were created to do. What's the problem? Who's the hero? And how do I see that I should be living? And an easy example is, um, is sports, right? Like a lot of people view that they were made to play sports. They were made to compete. They were made to be a professional athlete. And what's the problem? Well, I'm not good enough, right? So what's the solution? Work harder. Take steroids. Work harder. All of these things, that's their hero. That's what they're running to to fulfill them to what they believe they were created to do. But the gospel message tells us that we weren't created to do anything other than glorify and worship God Almighty. Right? And the problem is that we're fallen. We sin. We put ultimate value. We take it from God and Christ and we place it on tangible, temporary solutions. But God has provided a hero. Christ is the one that God has sent to save. And then we are able to to live as we were created in harmony and worship of God. One thing that we want to focus on as a church is is we want to fight against the tendency to be individual believers, right? Like the good news in all of this is that God hasn't designed the gospel message for us to believe it and then live it out on our own. But God has given us help. Hebrews 4, 12 says the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and intentions of 
the heart. So God has given us his word. His word should be our ultimate um, place. Of, it should have the place of ultimate authority in our lives. Nothing that we say to one another or do or how we live our lives should go against God's word. Secondly, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And so God has not only given us his word, but he's given us his spirit. God's spirit points us to Christ. And when we look inward, if you're a believer, when you look inward, God's spirit is in you. And he is wanting to highlight the areas of disbelief. He wants to point out the areas of idolatry. That's a part of his role, right, is to call us to believe. And so we need to know where we are giving value, where we shouldn't, where we are running to when we shouldn't, so that we can repent and turn. In Galatians 6, 1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so ultimately, God has given us his people. He's given us one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have heard and believed the gospel message. He has given us to one another to help us with our wandering hearts, right? He's given us, this is why it's important for us to be in one another's lives. It's easy for us to fool one another for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. We can look like perfect parents, perfect spouses, perfect people. But when we're in one another's lives constantly, it's harder and harder to put on a mask and to hide the real issues of our lives. And so God has given us one another. Believing that God is good and that we don't have to look elsewhere is ultimately an issue of the heart. Believing in God's goodness necessitates finding your purpose in him. His goodness sends us on mission to befriend sinners so that as many as possible would be saved. Charles Spurgeon said that if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. So this morning, the, the, the call to believe for us as believers is to renew the joy of our salvation by taking a hold of God's goodness. Fight against our wondering hearts to look elsewhere. And very similarly, for the challenge for not yet believers is the invitation to believe, to let go of finding your comfort, entertainment, and the things that people have no ability to satisfy. Experiencing God's goodness in his message today. Let's pray. God, at the beginning of our time together, we asked that you would, in your grace, 
and mercy expose the idols of our hearts. And ultimately, God, we know that that is a task that only you can complete. Mortal humans without the, the spirit of God have no ability at all to change people. We have no ability to highlight the depths of the human heart in one another. But God, we trust in your spirit. We trust in your gospel, your good news. We trust in your love for your people. So God, I ask that you would do that that I am incapable of doing and that you would continue to transform our hearts more and more into the image of your son, Christ Jesus. Help us to believe that God is good so we don't have to look elsewhere.